This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. are listening to Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And today we have a bit of a different episode. Kevin Mellon joins the show, and while he does have a new EP out called Songs from the Giants Chair, there's a lot more to him than just that. He's a comic book creator and a storyboard artist for The Vampire Diaries, Archer, and Hitmonkey. And we start off the whole show by discussing our mutual love of failure, But we move into his comic and musical influences like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mark Lanigan, and Phil Collins' era Genesis. Kevin explains why he decided against college to attend a place called the Kubert School, how he got into storyboarding, and exactly what a storyboard artist does. He also talks to me about how many albums he wrote and discarded before releasing his new EP. Pick up songs from the Giants Chair wherever you get music. Follow him at Melon Music on Instagram or Kevin Mellon on Bandcamp. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Support the show with a review, some coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety, or merch at performanceanx.threadless.com. So now get ready for a very unique story and an all-around great guy with Kevin Mellon on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Kevin Mellon on Performance Anxiety. We're going to talk about working on Archer, a little bit of uh, creative stuff, and my new album, Songs from the Giants Chair, which is out on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, I don't like that one, so let's see another one. Hey, welcome to Performance Anxiety. This is Kevin Mellon. I'm here to talk about my new album, Songs from the Giants Chair, out on Apple Music and Spotify. I'm also a storyboard artist and art director for Floyd County Productions, known for Archer on FXX and Hitmonkey on Hulu. Is there enough in there for you to splice something usable? Okay. I was like, if you need another one, I'm happy. I can keep doing this all day. I just, I'm like, wait a minute. Because <laughs> you'll notice I'll just keep rewriting, rewriting it. So like 10 more takes and I'll have something to <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me. This will be a lot of fun. Uh, sadly, I mean, I'm a new, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a fan of your podcast, but I'm a fan because I, I found you through the interview you did with uh, Ken Andrews. Oh, cool! Yeah. So awesome. yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Ken Andrews fan, big fan of your fan, and so I, and I'm obsessed hearing him talk process and kind of happy things, but also his struggles, you know? Yeah. And he's very open and pragmatic about all of it. And it's just very inspiring to me. He really is. And he was, it, it took a while to, to get him. I've, I've known Kelly 
for several years now. And uh, it, it took a while. Kelly's been on a few times, but it took a while to get Ken. And uh, I'm still trying to get Greg. I don't know if Greg will ever do it, but yeah. he's he's the most reclusive yeah. of all of them. Which makes sense. I mean, throughout their history, I mean, even listening to to Kelly and, and Ken talk about Greg, they talk about him as if he's hard to get a hold of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And they've got a direct line. So yeah, yeah. No, it's I'm stoked. I'm supposed to see them uh, here coming up in Atlanta. So I'm stoked to see they're gonna they're opening act as them in documentary form. So I'm stoked to see that. Oh, who's who's opening up? The they're playing a little bit of that documentary that's coming out oh, next oh, year. The, yeah. So that's the opening. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it too. Um, so I became a fan in the '90s after they broke up. Oh, really? So for me, it was uh, so. So when I so the first time I ever saw them live, not in, you know, YouTube form was, uh, that, that first reunion full tour, uh, you know, them doing fantastic planet, which like, that was what, 2014, 2015. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, that just blew my mind. And I'm like, in my, I'm kind of wondering like, is it better that I didn't see them doing it back then? Because they're so much sure and accomplished now. So the material itself like it's almost like they they have aged into forming them still as it should be. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't know that that's true, but that that fe- that's how that was my feeling when I was watching them. So. I yeah, and I I didn't I didn't get a chance to see them live, and I was a failure since Magnified, and uh, um, I, I never had a chance to see them in the '90s. Uh, something always came up whenever they were in the year because I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, something uh, always came up when when they would come around i was never able to de- you know money issues or other issues and you know it's just uh i was really t- ticked off and then when they came around again i had kids and all and I, in, in you know 2014 my kids were a lot younger and wasn't going to concerts at all so finally yeah. with uh in the future your body will be the first thing from your mind came out i was finally able to uh to catch them and uh, I used to be a photographer for years and years, and uh, Kelly got me a photo pass, the first one I'd, I'd gotten, and uh, fired away. I mean, I you know shot hundreds of shots and then sent them a whole bunch, and that kind of started me getting back. You're getting into live music photography, and that's that's kind of my hobby right now. The, yeah, I have my no, full time job. But... Well, I, I didn't realize so it's one of those things where like when you uh, started personal Instagram earlier, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. Cause I'd seen the performance anxiety page and you know, it's all the interviews obviously. Yeah. But I, yeah. So like, like seeing, seeing that you were doing that stuff, I was like, Oh, that's killer. Like that's, you know, oh, cause like, I, you know, I, I go to shows and I go to watch the show. I feel like if I were a photographer, photograph, I wouldn't even know what happened around me. I would be so focused on trying to get <laughs> that image. You know what I mean? So yeah, <laughs> it does. It's, it depends on the venue, you know, yeah. so documenting that stuff gets tough. Especially when you're short yeah. like me, I'm I'm five foot six, so I can't like tower okay. over the crowd and just. If I do that, I'm just <laughs> putting my arms up and just shooting willy nilly and hoping I get something. Yeah, no kidding. No, I mean that's the one thing about going to the shows is like I'm six one, you know, it's like over three hundred pounds. Like I'm a big dude, you know, and like it, like I I tend to be stand in the back, arms crossed guy. Yeah, you know, but like, but I I, I was a bouncer uh, for a long for a few years back in the mid two thousand. And so like, I basically, I sat in the, 
I guess that's what you call it. But I, uh, I sat in the, between the barricades and on the stage. So it's like, I worked a bunch of shows, like, you know, where like, like I worked a Mudvayne show where Chad is just on me in, in <laughs> and just holding him, you know, because wow. it's, it was a, probably about a 1200 person club. It was probably about a 1200 person club, you know? So like, it's small enough that but it's, you got him doing that. Or like, like, I remember like seeing Glassjaw when they still had uh, uh, the, the, uh, than guitarist and a completely different section, you know. Yeah. It was, but it was on the Worship and Tribute tour, you know. But like Daryl's just like right there, fucking singing his ass off, getting to see, you know, Justin play like that. But then I also worked Cottonmouth Kings shows. Oh wow! <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are a whole other animal unto themselves. Oh, so. I can imagine. <laughs> Man, I haven't heard of that band in a long yeah. time weirdly they i don't know what they do now but back then they toured so regularly i think throughout the course of the years there i worked at least three or four of their shows and and, and always in different spots like there was one time like like the drummer had a lower sickle drum kit so it was like a lowrider bike that he would sit on with the drums attached to it and everything (laughs) like that thing was crazy um they were they would load and also i helped with loading so they would load into that stuff and like it would take them hours to set it up man anyways and what i will say i mean this is totally random but like one of the coolest things i was just thinking about this the other day because um here in kansas for planet comic-con the uh, comic convention that happens here in town every year um but we were talking about like celebrities who you know who who can be a risk or celebrities to go above and beyond and they were talking about this one celebrity who stayed up until like literally like 30 minutes before his flight and then they had to like hyperspeed him to the you know just so he could try and get as many of the fans happy as possible yeah and it got me to thinking about it there was this we there was this one night when um uh, andrew wk played and he basically the venue was the show was done by like midnight or 12 30 something like that right the venue closed at two he stayed until his boss made him leave, like his mature manager made him leave till like four in the morning, just signing wow. everybody's stuff, talking with everyone, taking photos with whoever wanted it. Like we had to, so we set up a, like the venue closed and they were like, we'll pay you to stay after, but we, the bar had literally has to close legally or whatever, something like that. Yeah. So they told us bouncers like hang with him and whoever wants to stay with him and leave gets paid and all that, you know? And so it's like, we just stayed until literally he hugged the last person and got on his bus and drove out of town. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and it always like, it's, it's, that's always stuck with me that like we do these things like creatively that affect people in levels that, that we, a, we'll never understand, but we completely understand because that's why we do this. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyways. Yeah. All right. (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. 
Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. You are an artist on a lot of different levels. And to find out a little bit about where you, how you got to where you are now, I'd like to find out a little bit about your history, like how you got into the different types of art you're in. So you're, you're a visual artist and a musician from Kansas City. What was your first, was it comics or was it music or was it something else? It's it's probably a little a, a little bit of both all of it at the same time, but I do specifically remember um, being very young, like you know, early single digits, probably between the age of like four and seven or something like that. And my parents they used to take me to Branson, Missouri, which for those who don't know is kind of a the redneck Las Vegas of right. <laughs> you know, the, the Midwest. And I don't, and I say redneck lovingly, I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean, it's like, it is, you know, it's a very like family driven, um, a lot of, but a lot of country, a lot of, you know, it's probably changed that because I haven't been there in 30 years, but at the time, even back in when I was a little kid, it was still very, uh, bright lights, big city, but with very, you know, Midwestern, um, like a wholesome Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't know if Dollywood existed at that point. So maybe Dollywood has taken it over. Maybe. <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I, yeah, I remember we were, we were at one of the amphitheater, uh, not amphitheater, we were one of the theaters there and I don't remember who was performing. I just remember that at one point the, the singer pointed to the guitar player, the guitar player stepped forward to kind of take their little, love. I am the guitar player solo. Mm-hmm. And I remember like telling, pointing to my, my mom and pointing to, telling my mom, pointing to that guy, like that I want to do that. I want to be that, you know? Yeah. Then within a few years later, I remember being in grade school within that same few years. Sorry, I should say within that same few years, I remember being in uh, early grade school, like, you know, first, second, somewhere around there. And this, this one kid was drawing and he was blew my mind because, you know, my little kid mind, like these are amazing drawings. They're terrible because they were like, you know, probably been done by an eight year <laughs> But my, my, my seven or eight year old brain like saw that and was like, Oh fuck, this is amazing. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I tried to mimic what he was doing and very quickly started doing my own thing, you know? And so I don't know, for me, those, those things all tie together. But the other, the other part of that is, is from a, uh, I'm an only child, uh, and, the neighborhoods I, I grew up in wasn't surrounded by a lot of ki- family families with kids and stuff like that. So a lot, and my parents worked a lot. Okay. So there was just a lot of time spent making shit up in my head. So that's the storytelling part. That's the right, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just play, playing with my GI Joes and what is Destro getting up to this week that, you know, <laughs> that beachhead kick his ass. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and stuff like that. And like, and also seeing those cartoons, you know, getting into my, my late single digit ages, like eight, nine, 10, 11, stuff like that. I spent a lot of time in my head and making up stories in that, but then, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja along. And that was a huge, for whatever reason, me, just like millions of other kids, can, I connected that stuff on such a visceral molecular level. And right. I, I, to this day, I don't still don't quite understand it, but I do know that like, like I got into you know, the, 
the original run of the Eastman Laird comics, like there was okay. some color reprints that had been done by first comics in the late eighties. And so that was my first exposure to those, then the cartoon and then, you know, the movie, obviously and all that stuff. So, okay. but for me, there's like that stuff still to this day as kind of, you know, it still holds up for me. Like it still like rings a certain, like I can go through and read that stuff and, and still feel like a certain, like I don't there and like yearn for that stuff to exist again because they have it but i i do sit there and i do love how it still makes me feel to this day my relationship i like to, I like to talk with my friends a lot about my relationship with material because i'm constantly reevaluating albums i love or comics yeah I love, or movies and stuff like that and going like and because and, as i get older the movie or the the media the piece of thing that uh, that i'm talking about stays the same but I change. Right. Know? And so I'm, yeah. And so in, in reevaluating those, my relationship with all of that stuff, like there's some stuff that holds up, like, you know, 86 Transformers movie, like that blew my mind because <laughs> for so many reasons, because Transformers die, they say some cuss words, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, and the same thing in, in the turtles, like the turtles, like the turtles get hurt and yeah. bad things happen and it, it gets dark. Uh, but they always, you know, they always come out of it and that stuff sticks with me. And my, and I, as I reevaluate my relationship with that stuff, those themes still kind of come through and affect me today just as much as they did then. But I'm also like, well, you know, those things are also not that well-made. And yeah. <laughs> so what music was that's a very really long-winded answer, but yeah. What music, um, yeah. man, I'm a grunge kid, you know, uh, I'm of that age. Like I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, when all that stuff hit, uh, started playing guitar around age 12, you know, I had wanted to play much earlier, but there was, you know, just some family about that happening. And then finally, you know, they, they acquiesced and let me get and got me a guitar. Who knows what kind of guitar player or musician I'd be if I'd started there. I have no idea because it's like, yeah, what I have glommed onto like hair metal. You know, would I have been like a nine? Would I have been a nine-year-old that's playing, you know, like rat? I have no idea. Oh man, <laughs> you, you could have, you could have been an eleven-year-old shredding with Steve Vai. Yeah, exactly. I, but but I, I I got a guitar and guitar lessons right as you know Pearl Jam, Nirvana. Yeah, yeah uh, and honestly, like uh, I was extremely saddened by his passing. But you know, like Screaming Trees was a huge one for me because uh, my my buddy Lee got me Sweet Oblivion for my birthday that year uh, that it came out. Yeah, you know, so like so like I've been listening to Mark Lanigan's voice for over thirty years. You know, yeah. <laughs> like like as a you know, and and he was such a that band that especially that album was such a huge formative thing to my you know especially my songwriting then um, because it didn't sound like everybody else. You know. Pearl Jam was, is, wasn't, is still a huge influence. Um, but before that, I remember, I do remember a lot of Casey Case in Top 40. Oh, okay. So I remember, like, I remember, yeah. Like, so, like, I'm a big, like, I love pop. So, like, I, I, I'm that guy that loves Phil Collins' Genesis. Like, uh, even though I love King Crimson, Tool, and stuff like that, like, yeah. I, I can't get into your Gabriel Genesis. I, I've tried. Really? But Phil Collins' Genesis. I know it's weird. I know, man. Phil Collins. As soon as Phil Collins starts saying, "I'm in," I'm all in. So, what about Peter Gabriel's solo yeah. stuff? Like the the first three solo Love scratch, it. security. I I know it's so good. It's so good. You, you just I, can't I, put I the two together, though, huh? But yeah, I don't know why. And you know what though? It's been a few years since I've tried. I probably should go back and revisit because every time, maybe I'm trying with the wrong album. We start with Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and uh, maybe I should start with another album. You yeah, know what I mean? you may want to start with like Selling England by the Pound. Okay. That's a great yeah. one. But I also, I do love the Phil yeah. era also. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. And, you know, I think also it like has to do with like, I, you know, my parents didn't listen to a lot of like, I, my musical tastes are, I would say probably like 95% my own mm-hmm. because the stuff that they like is generally not what I'm super into, but the, the, there was some stuff that stuck. Like, like I'm a big Neil Diamond fan to this day. Yes. My mom, you know? Yes. And it's like, I, I love 70s Elton John. I'm a huge, you know, fan of, you know, which who isn't really, exactly. but, uh, but stuff like, uh, um, Oak Ridge Boys, just stuff like that, like to this day, still gets me. Because um, I do remember like a lot of those Midwest um, state fairs where seeing right, Reba McIntyre, you know, Judds, yeah. you know. So it's like there's stuff like that that has like a special place. So a lot of my my childhood is with uh, like Neil Diamond, pop country from the 80s, and a lot of Elvis. I was a big Elvis fan. Elvis and Roy Orbison, which, you know, oh, the I love Roy. diagram there is like barely, there's like it's mostly a circle of, yes. you know, those two. <laughs> um, I just I remember when Roy died. That was a was wrecked for quite a while on that one. So. Yeah, my dad was the same way. He's a huge Roy Orbison fan. So, so all right. So you mentioned a couple bands, and I I will plug my own podcast a little bit on my podcast, which I don't know. It may be the most meta thing I can do, but you can always go back. Mark Lanigan was one of my favorite episodes that I ever did. So he came on. We spoke for two hours. And he actually came on a second time and uh, just to discuss his Christmas album for like 15, 20 minutes. That was was awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I will say, like, as someone who recently discovered your show through the Ken Andrews interview, I have not gone through the back catalog. Yeah. That's one of those things that I'm excited to. Well, then that's one of the things I was excited to talk to you is because you do such long form conversations. Oh, cool. You know, like. I always get nervous about that. Something that like. Uh, now, as a listener, I want like if if it's less than an hour and a half, two hours, I'm sitting there going like, okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you also got to realize though, the nature of my day job is I'm sitting here drawing or editing, you know, working on stuff like you know, noting other people. If I'm not drawing it myself, I'm drawing, noting other people's drawings, you know. And so like right. I, stuff that occupies anything from four to eight hours of the day, depending on how much time I have to listen, is ideal, you know. So it's like if yeah. I'm constantly having to find a new hour thing to listen to that drives me nuts like i love okay. uh, that's why i miss like old drive time radio like i, I grew up uh well you mentioned new jersey i went to college in new jersey and so so when i moved there stern was still king you know yes. but then i i got into uh i, I moved there right as ona had been brought down there from boston so i got into ona quickly so that was like between them and uh bennington uh, what was it ron and fez between them and ron and fez it, that was like eight hours of my day just set that oh, I'm just sitting there just listening to, you know, and then there was, I think it was Dr. Drew was on after running Fez, you know? So, I mean, like there was, I, I just, I, I knew every day, like after that through from three to like 11, just, this is what's going on in, around while I'm doing all this other stuff. So one, if, now if you like uh 70s Elton John, you should check out the episode I did with BJ Cole. So he did a lot of the pedal. Okay. He did a lot of the pedal steel for Elton John back then. So. Oh, that's sick. Oh, yeah. that's so sick. Yeah. He's, BJ is awesome. That's one of those guys that not a whole lot of people know about, but I was super thrilled to to have him on the podcast. No, that's like when I discovered that Leland Sklar was on, uh, I'm sorry, I just slurred that Leland Sklar was on uh, YouTube because he dude that played with Phil. Like he's Phil Collins and all that. Like he's, yeah. you know, played with other people. Yeah. Um, and I was just like sitting there, I'm like, yeah, dude, let me, yes, more of this guy, please. <laughs> yeah, oh, Leland's amazing. So, all right, so you mentioned going to college in New Jersey. So how did you end up 
getting in, into drawing comics? You know, how did how did you end up going from Kansas City to the Cubert uh, School? Which yeah. I'm not a huge comic guy. Uh, I I kind of sure. got out of it. I used to be a, a big comics guy, but, but I, that was like the late '70s, early '80s, and then sports and, and girls kind of took yeah. that part of my brain. So I I saw Cubert <laughs> School and I thought of the video game, the old Cubert video game. So I guess that's not what it is. Very, yeah, very fair, very fair. Yeah, so I'll just start with me, and then I'll end up with what the keyboard school is. Sure. Um, so I love my, you know, it's like my my parents' fatal mistake was buying me comic books, you know, as a kid. <laughs> Mostly my dad. My dad was into comics when he was a kid. Like he read. So this gives away this this gives away the 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 later thing, which is my dad loved war comics as a kid. He loved like so he loved Nick Fury and his Howling Commandos, you know that stuff, and then Sergeant Rock. Sergeant Rock was drawn by a guy named Joe Kubert, okay. who in late seventies started his own school. Wow. So yeah, so I grew up with you know my dad. So my dad bought me. He didn't buy me Joe Kubert comics. I later found those on my own. Okay. In the late nineties or in the late in the nineties, there was like a Green Hornet comics revival and stuff like that. So he would buy I me that. He bought that. Me yeah. Bombers. So that got me because um, my he bought me. Do you remember they sold those like three packs? Yes. Eleven of like random comics yeah yeah sorry i'm burp, burping here oh, no worries that stuff may stay in though um that's totally fine <laughs> if you need the actual bur- audio of, of the burp i can happy to oblige um but uh so i remember getting a three pack that had transformers number one and then transformers number three which had the black costume spider-man oh um which so that was my first introduction to spider-man was him in the black costume so I didn't understand that he wore anything else for years because there was there was that and then and then a few months later somewhere around there I it was the death of Craven storyline which is all Spider-Man in the black costume and ends with the hunter Craven killing himself at the end of the book you know oh, so I'm wow. like 7 8 you know this is heady stuff That's this pretty is dark. time when uh, um yeah, it's also time when Batman Dark Knight Returns had come out and Batman Death in the Family where they killed Robin, but yeah. they had a poll that you could call in to vote to see if Robin lived or died. Super dark shit. Oh, um, yeah. Anyways, but through those, in those, uh, I loved comics and then he immediately started to try the storyteller part of me, the kid who spent way too much time by himself. <laughs> so I started trying to make my own comics and, you know, especially being a fan of the Ninja Turtles, like I was making my own Ninja Turtles comics. I was, oh, wow. And then started trying to partner with friends and like, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, to make comics with each other, just like taking eight and a half by 11 pages, folding and stapling them, and then just drawing, here's page one, turn the page, here's page two, you know, which then led to in in high school, uh, well, in middle school, I started getting my mom to take me to comic conventions, and then she me off and then she would go do her thing for a few hours and then come back and get me okay and so i started just meeting our uh, this was a time when that was okay yeah um and i'm better for i'm better off for it but it is definitely something that is frowned upon these days it, um, is, it really is i tried with my but, kids and uh i got yelled at oh i know right people i'm you know but i'm fortunate that <laughs> i'm just kidding parents trusted me from a young age i <laughs> i think i have to put I, that in there they trust me yeah <laughs> gee well you gotta put the disclaimer I, exactly in, yeah. you can always just edit that yeah yeah <laughs> um and so I, I got to meet comics creators uh and and eventually started taking them my stuff and i was terrible i was like you know between the ages of 10 and 
in the, you know, just going to these shows, but they were, they were all very nice and they would get, they would tell me what supplies I needed to buy. They would tell me, recommend things for me to work on like anatomy perspective, all that stuff. Okay. But all the whole time I'm seeing ads for the Kubert school in all these comics I'm buying, you know, cause they were advertising and Joe, Joe had a, a, a very consistent and steady relationship with DC comics for most of his career. So while he did other stuff, a lot of his career was, was for DC doing everything from Sergeant rock to Hawkman and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. He's always seen your name and his sons are in the industry. The Adam and Andy, they draw comics. They were on X-Men books in the early nineties. So their names were, so, so it's, it's in my brain, you know? Right. Um, but then I, I get, I get to, I get a guitar and I immediately start writing songs and I immediately, I immediately start trying to join bands and put bands together. And so like, I remember like the, my church, the church I went to, the, there was a worship band that played there full of like mid, mid twenties to mid thirties people. I, I'm at 13, like barely know how to play guitar, but I'm like, I want to audition for this. And they let me, and I think, and my mom took me, and I think it was, I think everybody involved was just like, okay. <laughs> so I went in, I, you know, it's like, I show up for this audition and like, you know, I, I had no, I, anyways, I did it and they were like, okay, you know, Hey, we just thought we'd give you a shot. You know, you're not ready for what we're doing, but keep at it. And then within another year, though, I had started, I had started essentially, it was coming together. And so I was basically a founding member of another worship band that started at that church. Oh, cool. And so, but by then I was, I was a year and a half into playing guitar, but I had gotten to a very deep point. It's not like I was a prodigy or anything. I just had, I worked, I just worked and worked and worked and worked, you know, I played every day for hours. Drew, drew every day for hours, you know, so all this is happening simultaneously. And then I got into that worship band and we very quickly, we went from playing to just our church to playing at a multiple churches. So I'm playing in front of like, I'm 14, 15, something like that, playing in front of hundreds of people Wednesdays and S Sundays, you know what I mean? Wow. Like each night. And, and, and that is a very hard drug to kick, <laughs> you know, <bet>. yeah. <laughs> like, especially at that age, but also I'm the youngest guy in the band because I'm playing with people who uh, the next oldest person was the singer and he was like 1920 and everybody else was in their mid to late twenties, you know? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and it's like, we're playing for three, 400 people at, at a clip. Um, and then anyways, and then that banded because of literally because of church politics. Um, oh, and gosh. it got, it, it basically set me on a path of like, I'm doing it myself from now on. This is going to be my band, my songs. So I wrote, just wrote dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of songs. Oh, but at the same time, I'm drawing comic book pages. I'm writing my own stories. Like, and basically I, I have a bedroom on the, the second floor of my parents' house, but I was essentially in the basement all the time because that's where we kept it, my art supplies, stuff like that. So I'm in the basement listening to Depeche Mode, <laughs> listening to Anthrax, <laughs> listening to The Cure, listening to Pantera. Wow. You know? <laughs> everything. You listen to everything. So like, yeah, everything, dude, everything. Um, you know, and, and then eventually put together what became my high school band, you know, and, and, and I, I was so, I was, was so self-motivated that like found a recording studio, did a demo, got a couple of gigs like at the high school doing stuff because of that. And then wow. put a, basically got a different drummer then immediately booked more studio time. So we recorded the, our first album in like January of 96. Then we recorded our second album in November of 96. And then, you know, wow. just kind of, yeah, we, and, and we're doing stuff like first album, we, we made ourselves a set, like we, 
duplicated on ourselves. By the time we did the second album, uh, I had learned about um, CD manufacturing. And so we raised the money um, through donations from family members and just kind of working our shitty Pizza Hut jobs because we <laughs> all had jobs by this point. And most of us worked at, and all three of the four of us worked at Pizza Hut. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so it was always, they could always tell when we were ditching out to go to band practice because mysteriously all three of us would not show up to work. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. Seriously, like the one person who was scheduled would call out, you know. Yeah, um, and, and yeah. So that that album came out on CD and stuff, like, and learned a lot through that process, all those processes. But all at the same time, I'm still drawing comics pages. So I probably drew, wrote, and drew hundreds of pages of, you know, my own stories. Like there was one massive story that I was working on that I got a hundred or so pages into, and then there's a couple other stories that I got dozens and dozens. So it all adds wow. up to a couple hundred pages of time, you know. And all this while going to high school and not really enjoying that at all. But like I had to deal with my parents as long as I got a three, five, they didn't fuck with me. So nice. I made sure that I, I, and also like back then, I don't know how it was, but back then in school, wasn't very hard. So <laughs> like for me, it wasn't anyways. Uh, again, I'm not a genius. I'm not smart at all. I just, I think I learned how to game the system in a fairly, in a way that worked for me and that I, you know, hey, <laughs> but it worked for um, you. Yeah. And so I had no intention of going to college, but I wanted to focus on music and I knew I could make art. And I knew at that age, I knew at that age of like 16, 17 college will do nothing for either of these disciplines. All they will do is just waste time, you know? And, um, that band broke up and spent another year or so a year or two trying to figure out like, okay, putting, trying to put another band together, trying to make other things happen. And then it just all, it just got to a place that was just like emotionally and creatively frustrating. And I said, you know what? I've been looking at the school thing the wrong way. I need to find a place where I can learn how to work. And because I knew I had the ethic, I knew I had the drive, but I was working in warehouses by this point and I didn't have time to get better. Right. So I realized that like, I, and that's, I went back to and started looking at schools again. I started looking at all these art institutes, all these you know various colleges and comics programs are so common now, but back then there was next to nothing. Oh yeah. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, so I remember the Kubert school and, and uh, I, Basically, did my research, um, talked, you know, talked to the admissions people, got the packets sent, you know, and then realized I put, uh, and and I started putting together a portfolio. Like I, I was a couple years out of high school at this point, you know, because I didn't go to since I didn't go to college right after. I I was graduating ninety seven, and I graduated from high school early. I was how much I hated high school early. Wow. I did play work release where I got a, I graduated in January and was like see y'all and basically didn't see anybody again until may for graduation wow. you know which in hindsight was 
stupid because then I had to work 30 hours a week. Whereas if I'd done like half days, we'll just go to school for like two days. I could have just fucked off the rest of the day. Yeah. But, you know, it, it that, I was better so angry at having, <laughs> yeah, I was so angry at having to, to be in school at all. Cause I, and I still think it's, I'm, you know, I'm one of those, I just gave a talk at a panel the other day at this convention where I was like, I'm sorry, parents, but school was bullshit. <laughs> like, it really is. <laughs> you know, and, and it's useful in some ways, but I'm just, I, I just am not of the opinion that for our type of people who are creative, I'm of the opinion that mentorship is useful. School yes. is not, you know? Yeah. And, and anyways, and that's kind of what I got out of the kids school when I finally decided to go to school, sold my parents on it, you know, and they were willing to help me out. And so I finally went and learned, basically spent three years just doing nothing but working, nothing but like just class was five, uh, five classes. 10 classes a week from eight to three, you know, it was very structured, like it was structured like high school, but it was two classes a day, 10 assignments a week. But because it was, because of that structure, none of the teachers really purposely coordinated with each other because they wanted you to feel like it was the real world where you have all these deadlines and you're trying to survive because also they're, they are working teachers who are also like, this isn't their full-time job. Like a lot of colleges, you have full-time professors who haven't actually been in the real world in a while. These are teachers who are in the real comics and illustration world. So they're giving you experience based on their experience. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. So I spent three years with essentially 10 deadlines about every two to three weeks, oh my you know, God. and it's like, you know, and I'm, I'm making it sound super, it is super intense. I mean, you probably making it sound more intense than it was, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It was also, it was, it was, some of the best and worst experiences, you know, and I'm sure everybody's college is ups and downs like that. Cause like, you learn how to navigate the world in a certain way. But I also learned that that was college, that college, especially like, I love it. And I recommend every, everyone who is interested in comics to check it out and see if it's right for them. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I put a lot into it and not everybody is willing to do that with their experience in college, you know? And th- that was one of those things where like, I, I to this day treat most things like this is like you get out of it. I got this advice from emailing someone before I went to college, like somebody who had gone there and graduated. I was like, Hey, you know, I'm just trying to scope out if this is for me. And this is like 97, or no, this is like 98, 99, you know? So I just was tracking people down and digging and basically getting their emails from other people who were like, you know, tell them I sent you that kind of yeah. thing. No social media to find people easily at all. Exactly. But I, I, I emailed people, I emailed probably a dozen people and maybe only one or two got back to me. But one of them that did was a guy named Brandon. And he he wrote back, he's like, Hey, uh, good luck with the school. If you decide to go, the only best thing I can tell you is you get out of what you put into it. And that set me on such a good path. Like yeah. it set me, like I still went through some lows, but to this day, that piece of advice, like 25, 20, almost 25 years later is like still a huge core of how I move forward with stuff. You know, it's like my relationship with working on Archer is it's like, I ultimately, I get out of it what I put into it. If I am not putting in that much into it, then it's not going to be that beneficial for me. You know, my relationship. Yeah. And my relationship with my friends, my, you know, my girlfriend, stuff like that. It's like, it's like, if I'm not trying then it's not going to give me anything back. I can't exactly. just expect something without having put forth any effort. And this is all a very long answer for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. I realized I've been talking like 50 hours about how I got into college. But, um, well, yeah. I've, I've got a question about this. What's the curriculum? Like what kind of classes do you take at Cuba? At comic book college? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll let you say so, that. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, no, I call I call it kind of a college to to lay people because it's like it's very well. It's the Joe Kubert school, and then you know, and that's it's it's not that hard to explain. It is a little bit for you know people who are more like more used to like regular, more easily explainable jobs, especially yeah. you know it's like you know a place like like Atlanta where it's a lot of film and tech people. So you get like film people who they understand what Cal Arts is, or you get tech people who understand what uh, Georgia Tech is, mm-hmm. but they don't always understand what a little trade school in New Jersey is about. You know, right? Crap, I just lost the thread. What was your question? What kind of classes do you take? What are the uh, assignments oh, classes, that you're right, getting? Yeah. So sequential art, which is which is what comic, another term from comic books, but sequential art is like pictures in a in an order that tell a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you take a sequential art class where you're making comic book pages. So you're either getting scripts uh, and or pitching scripts and then and then drawing them. So they'll give you like you know here's three pages of an X Men script, draw that, and then you get noted on like you know you, you do reviews, you do peer reviews where you put all the stuff up on the wall. Yeah, that. When you kind of break each other down, you know yeah. sometimes it happened negatively, but largely it was a very positive experience. Um, and that, but then also you get one on one teachers where they go through and out stuff. But then you're also taking like um, this is back in the late '90s, so they're like airbrushing is still a thing. So there was an airbrushing class, and oh, then wow. we had life drawing, which is where we're drawing from like nude models. You know, and then we had a, uh, there was a design class, but I think it was called something else. And then we had various painting classes. Yeah. So that uh, okay. there was the best, the, the reason I chose to go there and the reason I meant any person who's interested in the visual arts, explore that school or, or there's other schools more like it now is because I didn't have to sit there and take any bullshit math, science or history classes that have no application towards what I'm doing. Yeah. The most, I was just thinking about this the other day, like I have not used anything beyond addition and subtraction uh, <laughs> and a little bit of division. So why the fuck did I need algebra? <laughs> I did not, you know. <laughs> and I did. I, I will say, I did well in math, not because I'm good at math. I did well in math because I had a good teacher. But I, I, I think that that's a testament to his ability to teach, and not math being a and that sort of math being a useful function for a, a human who doesn't want to go into something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I will say, you know, it's like as a writer, uh, you know, my English class was a little bit. My English class was great because I learned how to come up with an idea and execute it in the hour before class. So I learned how to think very quickly and then write the paper that was due. <laughs> so I don't know that I learned anything from English class because everything I've learned about writing has all been after that, like, you know, three act structure and hero's journey and you know, I'm still terrible. I'm still terrible at grammar, but like, you know, I, I I will say the best best thing I learned from my creative writing class and then my English class was getting an assignment, fucking off, doing music and comic stuff in my spare time, and then having to turn in something and being like, oh fuck, it's seven a.m. and I'm on the bus, scribble, yeah. scribble, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> performing under pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, that's hence performance anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so those. It was very much just all art classes, which is what I loved about it. It was just all drawing and all problems to do, problems solved to do with drawing and how to approach different things. And so what I will say is a lot of a lot of people fixate on style. I did not. I well, I did, but in a different. I went in with the mindset, and I didn't really talk about it super actively until after I'd done it a couple. Of, so it really kind of threw a lot of my fellow students and my teachers. But I went in with the mindset that I was. Just, and follow my muse and change things up every 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 few. So every semester, switch the I switch my style oh, wow. sometimes multiple times a semester. But I 
if you look at my work from those three years of school, it's like you see a gamut of things going on. There's not, maybe there's a through line in that it looks like me. I have no idea. I don't think it does. I mean, I know, I know, I know it's me, so I can't say. Right. But I tried everything from like expressionist, you know, uh, things to blocky cube, not cubist, but kind of more, um, you know, angular, lots of dark blacks, like, or just, I did this one thing where for a while where I was just like dropping out lines like crazy. So you get these, you could tell it's a figure, but it's missing a lot of internal detail. So it's okay. really just very silhouette heavy. Oh, cool. You know, just, I, I know it's hard to explain over an audio thing, but you know, so, but I, and then I did stuff that was realistic. I did stuff that was very comic booky realism, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, I, I came out of it with a, I know I have a better grasp on what I can do rather than just having focused on one surface style and honed that. Yeah. But the people who did that, the people who focused, focused on a surface style and honed that got work much faster. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it did take me a while out of school to kind of like, you know, kind of come up with, get back to a style that was mine. So uh, it did did help me kind of like, it prepared me to, to be malleable, especially for when I later went to Floyd County and working on Archer. But it, it also, it made people wary as to what they were going to get, you know? And I think that's an interesting problem to have. I came as not a, a tool that they could use. I came as a toolbox that they could choose from. And a lot of people when they're hiring don't like to think that way. And I get it because I've, I've been in a position now for the last 10 years where I've had to hire a bunch of people. And if you don't know what you're going to get, it may, it makes it harder to choose that person. So you know, and it's it's a double edged sword, and I'm always because of my experience with that. I'm always mindful of that when I'm looking at people. You know? Okay, were you still playing music at the Cuber School? Or did you kind of put that aside for the time being? So that's that's interesting. Um, the The band broke up. Uh, then I took a year to woodshed because I was like, oh, I'm going to be the shittiest artist at the school. It's it's comic college. It's going to be there. Everyone's going to be so much better than me. Yeah. And I got there, and it was a mix. It was a mix of people who were excellent and a mix of people who had never drawn comics in their life but wanted to wanted to. You know, wow. so it was it was interesting. Uh, first year and a half, I would say I wasn't really doing music much. I was still playing guitar a little bit. Then um, I went through some heartbreak in the summer of like my, my second and third year. Um, so then I, that ended up necessitating, I mean, as is with all songwriters, an album of heartbreak songs came out of that, you know? Yeah. And also I had borrowed a buddy's four track and was relearning because in high school I had borrowed another buddy's four track and had learned how to multi-track myself. And so I learned how to play, um, along with myself so that when we went into the studio, like I was able to double everything. I had written all these melody lines and stuff like that, rather than being a 16 year old and having to figure out what happens in the studio. I went in knowing all of my parts forwards and backwards. And so, and then, you know, cut to, I'm 20, 21 in college, you know, living in a basement, you know, apartment or whatever, and like feeling the pangs of heartbreak. And so I just started writing songs and I started just, and I borrowed everybody's for a different buddy's portrait and <laughs> was, was relearning how to use that. And that got the, the bug back in me for playing. And then that summer, between second and third year, because this school goes by years rather than, you know, it's not freshman, it's just, it's a three-year school. So okay. somewhere between second and third year, reconnected with the bass player from my high school band. And like he and I 
literally started trading tapes because I had a, a boom box that I could plug my guitar into the eighth inch uh, microphone jack. I had found an adapter that I could plug in <laughs> so I could record and I still had a couple pedals so I could shittily record into this track thing. He had a four track so he could take that tape and then dump it into a four track. And then we would just send the tapes back because the boom box had dual cassettes. I could play his and record onto another one. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, you know, and the shitty thing is, is I had a, I had a goddamn Mac. I should have been learning <laughs> to do like, like digital audio stuff yeah. then, but was, you know, at 20 and like, you know, in, at 20 and, uh, and 19, or no, I was 21 and yeah, in the year 2000, stuff like that. I still thought old school like that. Yeah. So still t- it took a few years. <laughs> it wasn't until after I got out of college and, got uh, a credit card that i bought pro tools yeah. <laughs> you know but but like yeah so that got me back into it so that basically i got through my third year was super burnt out and then um went moved back to kansas city and got into a band with a couple of other people with that basis and, and a couple other people and just kind of like have been you know spent the next 10 years after that up, up until i moved to atlanta just kind of meandering in and out of things like while I was bouncer at a bar, worked at a liquor store, loaded trucks, you know, uh, worked at a pizza hut again, <laughs> like that. all of that, like while doing music, but also trying to get a comic book career going as well, which finally started in, in earnest, um, after a, a lot of really kind of hustling and stuff like that, my first comic book came out in 2007 and then just kind of never looked back after that. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so you do, are, are you doing them independently that, how does that, process work how do you get a comic out it's different it's different for everybody um but what i i met uh, a guy named dennis hopeless um he's uh he he was he's a local uh casey native he uh he worked at a comic shop at the time okay and so he and i met and just started talking ideas and then basically we just started coming up with pitches and we would just pitch all these companies and they would say no um but generally the way getting a comic book made works is there's a couple different ways you make one and then you get, send it to people or get people to buy it. And then somebody comes along and says, Oh, we want you to do that for us, but we'll actually pay you. Oh, you know, okay. or if you're an artist who doesn't write, you just want to work on like, you know, you're sending, you're doing samples. Okay. So you're doing, here's six pages of Spider-Man. Here's six pages of Batman, whatever. And you're sending them to editors or you're going to comic book conventions and meeting editors and stuff like that. And basically just trying to be someone that they want to hire. Okay. You know, so yeah, but I would say the the best to, to it's comics is a lot like music. The best way to get work doing more of it is to do as much of it you can for to show people that you are capable of doing it. Yeah, and that you're that you improve. You know, bands don't just like make go to labels and say, "Hey, we're a band. You should sign us." They make an album that the label or you know the audience or whatever finds. Yeah. Or, you know, or to get, or that they send to a label or send to whatever, you know, and the comic books works, the, the works very similar, you know, there's a lot of difference between music, the music industry and comics, but there's a lot of overlap in that, that diagram. So. so how did you go from making your own comics to storyboarding for like Vampire Diaries and Archer and other shows? Yeah, yeah. And, so, and um, what is the different? What is what does a storyboard artist do that's different from a comic book artist or an animator? Because I don't know the difference. Sure, no, that's okay. Um, you probably have to remind me of a couple of these questions because I'll probably ramble as I. <laughs> yeah, as I'm sorry. I, I, I throw but, you like three questions at once. I, I apologize for that. No, 
if I, if I had a better brain, it would hold on to all of them at once, and then I could just take off the answers. But I, I tend to, as you've heard, and your audience is probably uh, uh, inured to at this point. I talk a lot, and then I kind of go down these paths. That's what this but, podcast um, is all about, man. Yeah. So how I got into it was uh, um, had no intention of of working in TV or anything like that. Had been offered storyboard but didn't really it wasn't my thing i, I just was like no tv's not what i want to be in i want to be in, i'm a comic book artist i want to be in comics and then i became a fan of frisky dingo which was uh created by adam reed and matt thompson the guys who later did archer but they're, they're also the guys who created uh, who did c-lab 2021 oh okay. or, yeah for, for adult swim so frisky dingo was is kind of that it has a for those who don't know it's it's a weird like 10 to 15 minute show um there's like two seasons but i became a fan of that and just ate that up while it was on and then it, it got canceled or ended just ended i don't remember which when it would have that happen. but then saw announcement you know in 2008 2009 that archer was coming and it was from the same people who made frisky dingo and i'm like well i was all in from the word go <laughs> but then i watched you watch that pilot and i just fucking died laughing it's super smart i had to google you know google existed fortunately at this point but i had to google several jokes to find out why they were funny you know and i loved that it wasn't cerebral it wasn't yeah it wasn't cerebral in like in a in a talking down to me away it was cerebral in a like this is really fucking funny and so i just fell in love with it and eventually around the time um season two came out i found the art director uh neil holman online on Twitter, Twitter had happened in 2007. So, you know, started using Twitter um, and networking with people. And, and I was already networking with uh, other creators and stuff like that. But I started following Neil and talking to him. And then eventually 2010, 2011-ish, yeah, late 2011, while they were making season three, they put out a call to that they wanted to hire storyboard artists, but they wanted people in Atlanta or, or Georgia residents, you know? And I just was like, I literally just replied to him, oh, fuck, I wish I could apply for that. And he messaged me and said, hey, man, let's see what we can do. So I sent him a bunch of my comic book work. And he was aware of some of it, but I sent him some stuff that was newer that he hadn't seen. And so I I ended up testing for them. And um, they ended up hiring me for part-time work from Kansas City on season three. Wow. Which then, uh, so that, that was kind of like a trial process then. They also were new to really doing that. They hadn't really done that before. So they were tra- kind of taking a chance, which I, I, to this day, I'm super grateful for. And then uh, uh, at the end of season three, he said, you know, hey, we know you've got this comics career, but we'd love to have you done here full time. So, you know, let us know what you want to do, but you need to be here by this point if you're going to be here. You know? Wow, <laughs> uh, oh, man. Yeah, so so we worked it out and I, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to try to give this a shot. And so I, I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia about 10 years ago as of about right now, it was around the March. I, I get a little fuzzy. I'd have to actually look, but sometime end of March, between end of March, middle of May of 2012, I attached a, a U-Haul to my um, shitty 93 GMC Jimmy and then <laughs> drove the 800 miles. Um, and yeah, and just fortunately have been, I've been fortunate that, you know, through, through well, I'm working on season 13 of Archer right now. I, I after, after Hitmonkey, we're kind of waiting to see what happens with future of that, if we're going to get more seasons. So yeah. they're like, can you hop on an archer for a little bit? And I found it a little bit uh, um, serendipitous that I started on season three and I'm back on season 13 and it's been 10 years and all this other stuff. You know, it's like, I know it's just math, which I talked earlier yes. about my struggles with, but, 
but I, I, I do, I, I do appreciate the symmetry there that I have at this point found myself kind of back full circle, you know, helping out on the show and training people on the show that I started out on, you know, that's so awesome. Yeah. But anyways, long winded. That's how I got into Archer. And then how I got into vampire diaries is, I mean, the best way to get into Finn Atlanta is just to talk to people and meet strangers. And I was at a bar, a girl came up to bum a cigarette. I smoked at the time, so don't smoke kids. Um, I smoked <laughs> it and uh, under a cigarette, loaned. Um, I gave her a cigarette and started talking about what we do. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a storyboarder. And she's like, oh, I work on Vampire Diaries. And I'm like, oh, I love that show. I'm a big fan. She's like, she looked at me. She's like, what, really? You know, because it wasn't really a, a known as a dude show. But I, I, I love vampires, you know sparkly or not and so i uh uh and that then told her what i did is like well i'm a storyboard artist and like her and her friend that were there both worked on the show and they're like oh fuck we need we need storyboard artists like we're dying for storyboard artists wow. so uh, they tried to get yeah and this was in the middle of season five so tried to get me on season five she tried the producer did didn't quite work out timing wise but they got me on board for season six so i ended up storyboarding season six seven and eight the last three seasons yeah, and, and they're wonderful to work with, such nice people. And I did all this on top of working a full-time 40, 40 to 50-hour week on Archer. Oh my so I was just doing all this in my spare time. And then that rolled into the same production company that made Vampire Diaries did the pitch pilot for Black Lightning. So that rolled into me working on that. And even wow. though that production company didn't end up making the actual show, the show creator, Salim, liked me. So he kept me on for season one. And so I ended up storyboarding... Um, because I know I was the only storyboard artist, but they may be other people. But I ended up boarding sections of I think eight or nine out of the thirteen episodes, something oh like gosh. that. So, so yeah, and so yeah. What what is a storyboard artist? What what are you actually doing? So two two different uh, kind of similar jobs for live action animation, but different in the sense of scope. So with animation, um, both start the same. You get the script and you read through and then you start visualizing it. So visualizing it in this, and this happens, this is the same process for comic books too. You get the script and you start breaking it down into moments. The a comic book script is generally broken down for you by the writer. Um, you know, panel one, this happens, they're saying this. Panel two, this happens, they're saying this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Animation, uh, animation scripts and live action scripts look the same the way they're structured inside what they say can be a little different because animation needs to be a little bit more specific than live action. But put the role of storyboards in animation is it is the visual blueprint for how they will make the show. So the script is the blueprint for the story. The storyboards are the visual blueprint for what the final thing is going to be. So the, a, a nice, I like to say a lot of time, a script is not a comic book. A script is not a TV show. A script is not a movie. It is a document. And there, I've heard other smarter people refer to it as it's essentially a work order. So it is telling you what you need to do okay. and the order in, um, in which you need to do it in order to have this thing called a movie or a TV show. Okay. And so you're taking that and, and I, I do these talks every once in a while and I've started labeling them like I labeled one of them. The script is a problem because it is, it presents, the script is a, is a solution for how to tell a story. It is not a solution for how to visually tell that story. And often more often than not, they present problems. So as a, as a storyboard artist going in and going, okay, this person's talking, but then they suddenly need to be talking to this person. But in the scene before they were in different rooms, I need to have them come in together and figure that out. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. those are, that's a problem that I then have to visually solve 
sometimes it's easy as cutting and sometimes you just have to, sometimes you can show them, you know, walking up to each other, you know, and those, so you have to figure out those problems. Okay. Storyboarding and, and animation, you storyboard every moment. In live action, generally they only really hire you to storyboard the stuff that's complex. Okay. So in animation, everything that you see on screen has a storyboard for it. Okay. In live action, most of the stuff you see don't have a storyboard for it. Uh-huh. Like a Marvel movie, yes. You know what I mean? Like a big movie, a big action movie that has a lot of like, you know, CG and stuff like that will have, even if they don't call it, this is a gripe area I have, they've gotten away from calling it storyboards. A lot of times now they call it previews. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a, it's still storyboarding those fuckers. Um, but still, <laughs> it's yeah. This is probably why I'll never get work for like you know Marvel or Disney or whatever. Like, well, I work for Disney technically, but I'll never get work on big movies like that because I consider this it's all storyboarding. Just because you're paying some guy in 3D to do it doesn't mean he's not he's still a storyboard artist. He's yeah. still helping you tell the story. You know, makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyways, but like so like on Vampire Diaries, that's a 45 minute. So 45 to 50 minute script, you know? Yeah. So, but they don't need storyboards for two people in a room talking. And that's largely what that show was, you know? So, cause they can set up a camera pointed at one actor while they're doing their lines, then do the reverse setup, you know, or well, more realistically do your master, then do your overs. So it's like, do your master where you've got the wide of them talking, get your coverage. Then you go over for one and then you go over for the other person. Okay. Am I saying things that you understand? Yes. Okay, just want to make sure. I, I realize I'm like, wait a minute, I don't want to get too into the weeds on saying overs and masters unless, so we, like, unless you're with me. So for for people who can't actually see you, you 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 know overs you you that's an angle from one yeah. person, and then the other side so, for the other person. Yeah. So the way uh, the way easy way to explain it that everyone I think will understand is the friends setup. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a, a wide view at the beginning of every show of you know of the scene of six people in the living room. Yeah. Then from then after the after that's called your master. And then after that, you have all these close-ups or two shots where it's like if it's Joey and Chandler, that's a two shot. If it's the camera is over Rachel's shoulder at Monica, that's a reverse. You know, like you have, and then you can have close-ups and any number of shots within there. Okay. But that's that's your coverage. So it's like your master is you're getting like the big uh, broad strokes of the scene. Then you get to go in for coverage and do everybody's lines, their jokes, their reactions, stuff like that. Yeah. Unless something, unless there is mechanically something in the scene that is super complex, you don't generally need to storyboard that out. You just need to basically rehearse it with your actors and and understand the point of what they're trying to get across and make sure that they feel good about their moment, you know? Okay. But what I got hired to do with Vampire Diaries was most people don't realize that a, a huge function of storyboards is also budget. And what it does is it tells the people in production the scope of how much money they need to spend to make that happen. (laughs) You know, I appreciate you going into some detail about what it is and how it works. Were you writing music still at this point or did you just not have any time? Um, so by the time I, 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 throughout the 2000s, I was in and out of bands. Um, and then that stuff just kind of like slowly fell apart towards the end of the, of the aughts. And then around 2010, 2011, I was mostly just focused on making comics. Wasn't making a lot. Um, but well, I, I had gotten the iPad had come out. And so garage band on the iPad game changer. So I had started, I, I had gotten in the 2000s, I had bought pro tools, learned how to use that. And then was and we had gotten to a place with 
that we were running a small studio and, and right as we were about to start, like really kind of trying taking on clients, the studio got damaged in with some inclement weather uh, insurance wouldn't cover it. And so it kind of like made everything fall apart, you know, and it kind of set me on and weirdly it's what set me on this path. So I decided to, you know, it's like, I've really focused on comics and not making that happen. But then, uh, you know, the, the iPad, the iPad one came out and garage band and all that. And then garage band on your phones and everything. So I started making music again, like, because it was fascinating that I it had in my hand, you know, something that was just as good as the Mac G4 Mac and pro tools that I had been running a decade previously, you know, yeah. <laughs> I was just like, shit, that's what I, man, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Yeah. G4 and, too. And so, Love yeah, that thing. so I was teaching myself how to do that and not really doing, not really doing a whole lot, but just demoing some stuff here and there. And by side, my, I, I don't know how normal this is for every other musician, but I, my process of writing is I come up with hundreds and hundreds of ideas and then I pick the ones that I feel like are the strongest. So I don't sit there and write a song to finish. I come up with like riffs and ideas. Okay. Well, I do write songs to finish, but the times that I write a song from start to finish versus the hundreds of riffs that it took to get there <laughs> is usually, you know, so I just was collecting ideas and then, uh, and so the storyboarding kind of my life storyboarding, making some comics. So I, I, I was still making comics full time when I took on the storyboarding gig. Um, and then uh, the storyboarding kind of by, by taking on vampire diaries and all that, it kind of ate uh, all of my free time away bet. for a few years. And then, uh, I had, a I was in the middle of, I had just gotten back into making some music, uh, you know, again, due to heartbreak at the end of 2015, when I had kind of a traumatic life event where a tree fell on top of the house I was staying in and I was in it and trapped under the tree while that happened. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Long story, very, you know, as short as I can make it. But like, basically, I was watching. I was watching a movie, heard what sounded like a shotgun go off, and I look up as the whole world falls in on me. Um, a basically That's... a tree had a, a tree had come loose from its roots um, because it had been raining so much and fell from the backyard to the front. But the front yard, it caught the corner of the house that my bedroom was on, and trapped me under. And we're talking a large tree; it would take two of me to wrap my arms around it Whoa. fortunately and fell in such a way that it didn't crush me. It just pinned me between me and my bed and, and it laid at such an angle that I was like, you know, <laughs> um, and it took him a few hours to get me out. And yeah, no, I, fortunately the only, the only damage I have, I, everyone that I was not like, you know, made into mashed potatoes, including <laughs> myself. Um, yeah. But fortunately, the, yeah, the only damage I really have is because of the way I was pinned. I have some residual damage. So my elbow, you know, it hurts a lot, you know, still. And then just PTSD from something like that happening. You know? No kidding. <laughs> but that that event kind of spiraling into a couple of other life events led to me writing an album um, in 2016 called A Girl, A Tree, A Dream. And it's about like that sequence of things. I always say it's like the joke is, I fell for a girl, a tree fell on me, and then I fell out of my mind because um, making <laughs> writing in after, after the tree thing, I basically was in such a bad mental state that I hallucinated that for about a month and a half that nothing that was happening to me was real. And wow. it, you know what I mean? So I, I thought for a, long, a few weeks that like, and I, I was, I spent those few weeks trying to get my life back to normal as fast as possible because I didn't believe I was still alive, you know? <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Yeah, was, That's yeah, wild. It was, it was wild. It was, my brain was doing some wacky stuff. 
and I finally came out of it, you know, and, and faked my way through a lot of very convincing human interactions in that time, which was a little scary upon retrospect, retrospection. It's a little scary that I was able to hide it that well, but that um, man, it put me, yeah. And so I started writing these songs and eventually I just, and in order to deal with that trauma of like the, the relationship stuff and then the, the tree events and then the mental break after that, I wrote that album and that was just such a, a, a floodgate. It opened the floodgates of me just continuing to like, okay, I'm back in, I'm making music. I am back, yeah. in, you know, and, and making time for it. And, and so, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> Then, you know, like, it's like, well, why didn't you put out another? I put that album out in 2016, and now here we are in 2022, and I just now put out, like, a second, you know, EP of yeah. music. It's like, what took so long? <laughs> well, I wrote hundreds of other songs to get to the ones that I wanted to put out. <laughs> All right. Well, I, yeah, yeah. I was listening to A Girl, A Tree, and A Dream, and the first question I had was the title, so I, I didn't even, I don't even have to ask that one anymore, but I think... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I really do, like all the way to hell that is just a cool song i mean it starts off really aggressive Thank you. Um, then it just mellows out yeah and then it goes all aggro again it's great appreciate both the story and the joke behind that one all the way to hell is me trapped under the tree so that's the story but the joke is um i was i was watching a lot of 30 rock and the joke is when jack donaghy is having a heart attack he's going like ride it donaghy ride it all the way to hell so that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) so it was me like trying to make light of in my head it's me having a little in joke for myself about this very severe thing you know uh, well the whole the whole album is pretty heavy and dense until be in love. Thank you. You're like the first person to ever bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> what was, what uh, happened you there? Noticed, you noticed that, huh? Yeah. Um, so I started that song about someone and finished it about someone else. Oh, you know, does that okay. make sense? Yeah. So the chorus, "Run it, we are so far from being in love, running so hard from being in love, was about the, you know, the girl, you know, from A Girl of Dream. Yeah. But the verses ended up being about someone who helped me get over all of that, you know? So it's like, I had met someone in kind of that relationship. And while that relationship was not very long, it was very like rewarding in that sense. And that it let me know that I was like, it. I knew that. And I left the chorus because I also knew that relationship wouldn't last. <laughs> it was very much a transitional thing. For both of us, you know? And so that, but it was, it was kind of like my way forward. And I didn't really have, at, you know, it was the only way I knew at the time 
to bridge that gap of like, cause especially after the fucking bullshit, like heaviness that it, emotional heaviness that his life goes on. And I'm here alone and I like sitting there saying like this is not where i'm supposed to be this is not who i am this is not what i wanted to be but life keeps going you know that sort mm-hmm. of thing i have that yeah, at least unless i'm remembering it wrong i could be forgetting my own track <laughs> listing, but <laughs> you know being love and being love also when he just like uh, i had come up with the that bit that baseline kind of like you know and it felt like a it felt like a yacht rocky like kind of thing yep and yeah and so and plus when sam um who who based sam uh hawk or sam well he's not in talk sam hoskins he mixed that album but he also played drums he produced it and played drums and bass on it. i played bass on that song but he played drums on it and he put uh the hammond over that doing that little organ stuff and yeah. i was just like oh fuck yeah this is this is great but it definitely was my mind that this is my literal mental shift in where i'm at now because that song didn't get finished until we were recording it which was about six months after I'd written all the others. So my life had gone uh, through a bunch of stuff, you know? So I was, it's kind of that bridge into like, here's the next, the beginning of the next phase okay. and a palate cleanser for all of the, you know, cause like, like track two, let's get drunk is literally about me just like drinking myself into a stupor all the time, you know? And all that yeah. So it's like the album has, it's like the album, like for being a pop rock album, it's, you know, it's got all these darker themes going on. And that one, while it's not the most positive, happy love song, cause it's an anti-love song. <laughs> it is a, it's okay. Like we're moving on, we're moving through kind of thing. At least for me, it was. So did you play any of this stuff live at all at that time? I have never, I have never done any of that album live at all. The first wow. uh, and the first live show I've done for any of my solo stuff just happened last night. So. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. But... <laughs> but but we didn't even do anything off of that album. I, I don't know why. It didn't occur to me. I was like, you know what? This probably would have been easier instead of having these dudes learn four new, like, because they learned the five songs off the new EP plus four new ones for an EP I'm putting out this summer. Oh, cool. All of which have a lot of, comp- have hard time rhythms and stuff like that because I write a lot of stuff in odd times. And I'm like, why didn't I have them learn songs from the album that are much that that because that album's mostly four four three four like it's a much simpler. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. It just oh. didn't occur to me, and I don't know why. Like I'm like, am I okay? Clearly, I harder, not smarter. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same same here. Yeah, so, yeah. All right. There's a six year gap between albums, but yeah. the next album is actually Guitarscapes, which is yes. really interesting. That's it's what four tracks, I believe, right? And it's kind of stream of conscious, improvisational, yes. yeah. and the songs are much more sprawling. You know, they're they're the shortest one is yes. nine minutes and twenty seconds, which I think I'm trying to think that might be my favorite. The mother of the is this is mother? the purple yeah. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, like yeah, that yeah. a lot. Thank you. That was actually the first one I did. Um, oh, cool. So, yeah. Did you get to the end of it? Yeah, uh, I I listened to so much over the past couple of days. I bet, I bet. It's it's always, and that's not a test, by the way. That's not a test. I just want to say, 
because I feel like a lot of people listen to it and they don't actually get to the end of that one because there is an actual song at the end. when I'm prepping for this stuff, I'll put it on, but I'm putting it on at my job. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. And- Again, <laughs> test. Not, not a, like if you hadn't heard it, that's fine. It's more me going like, maybe I should start telling people this, but I don't know. Like, but it is, <laughs> we'll also say that. So the, the reason it's called mothers, there's a song at the end of that instrumental thing that does have vocals and it's called mother. And that song, it's something that I, that song kind of unlocked something in me as a songwriter and, that let me know that I could go to a different place emotionally than I had before. Okay. But I was in the middle of writing all these other songs. So to get to your question about the six year gap, I wrote two EPs. I wrote, I wrote and recorded a full acoustic EP, like five, six songs recorded a five or six song rock EP. And I was planning on putting them out at the same time. They're done. And then I realized I hated the way I was singing on them. I hated the way it sounded. I didn't like my voice. I didn't like my performances. I didn't think I was doing very well. Wow. Uh, I was struggling and I, I felt every, like every time I played it for people, they were like, well, you know, this is cool or whatever. And like, I knew it was my singing. Like I knew the singing was the problem. So really, I was ready to just power through and get them mixed and mastered and put them out. Then I decided to put the halt on it and I started reworking the vocals for those two EPs. And in the middle of that, I just, I started, this is all pandemic during pandemic, you know, like, so I had written those two EPs in 2018, 2019, was getting ready to put them out at the start of pandemic and pandemic really kind of put a halt on my mentality for life. Same with a lot of people, you know, but what it kind of did in hindsight that I didn't realize until, you know, once we kind of started, once I started came, coming out of it was it gave me time to reevaluate my creativity in, in a way that I hadn't before. And I stopped thinking that my voice was just bad and I would have to deal with it. And I started going and I started realizing that this is like playing guitar. I need to practice it and I need to do it more and I need to take lessons and do all this other stuff. And so while I didn't take lessons from a physical person, I bought just woodshed and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i just practiced and i just wrote and wrote and wrote and so part of the reason those eps didn't get they're they're sitting unreleased is because it's like it's hard for me to go back to stuff that i've finished once it's finished so it's like it'd be like i'd almost have to go back and like deconstruct those songs and rewrite them but at the same time i throughout pandemic i wrote three hours worth of stuff and on top of those wow Right. So like, so in, in the spring of 2021, I was, I found myself in a place where I'd started to write, I wrote Sincerely Paul, which became the first song in the EP.
And that was like, okay, even my, my simple, I uh, was having computer problems. So I just plugged my guitar into my iPad and started demoing it on there. Like okay. I remember speaking of writing songs in one go, I, I was frustrated with some work stuff started mucking around on a Friday evening and six hours later I had the the full structure and basis of the song so that when my computer was fed, I just dumped it back into logic and started making it better, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> but that being, yeah. And, and that, that song is a conversation where it's basically, um, it's Job on each ripping his clothes, throwing dirt in his face saying, why God me? But it's my version of that is like, instead of staying on the beach, I just walk into the ocean and I'm just looking up and I'm having this conversation with both. It, it, I don't know if it's God or if it's my higher self or whatever, you know, cause I, I'm not super, I'm not a Christian, you know, but I, I do believe in spirituality and stuff like that. But I, okay. I, you know, and a lot of the album is a conversation with my, my higher or lower self, depending on which, uh, which song, I'm not, well, sometimes both, but, and that was me, you know, just like, like, allowing myself to really just vent these feelings and these emotions, you know, that's why like the, there's no real chorus. There's just a breakdown where I scream yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and that's, that freed up my notion of what these songs that I could write be. And then I want to say next, I did write ambient next. I feel like, like, you know, so it just kind of all just led to itself, ah, Okay, you know, but to, to get back to guitar scapes, like guitar scapes happened during all of this. Because I, during lockdown, I wasn't able to go anywhere, you know, and, and I would get frustrated. And I found myself like just recording me doing what I did anyways, which is just fucking around with my delay pedal. My I have like six delays. I'm running out of time. I got the volume pedals. I got all these. <laughs> so I just found myself just mucking around and looping, you know, with looping things. And, and I started recording them and, and realized like, oh, okay, this could be a thing. Yeah. So I, I, I think I recorded maybe like eight and then four of them are what are on the album, you know? Oh, cool. And it's like, it's like, and I don't record, I should record every time I do that, but I don't, cause I do that. I do that like dozens of times, hundreds, well, hundreds of times a year, but I really recorded a handful of them. And I just kind of just tried to remember to hit record when I really felt like I was in a place. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. really I'm really enjoying the new album, the songs from the Giants Chair. First, okay, first of all, you explain sincerely, Paul, and I love. I think that that is my favorite song on the EP. It's got this great post. Oh, that means sound. a lot. Thank you. And yeah. honestly, it the way you explain it makes so much sense because I I hear such a huge leap forward from a girl, a tree, a dream in both songwriting and performance. Everything is just just taking this huge leap forward, and it's noticeable. Thank you. I'm, I'm really, I'm really, uh, happy to hear you say that. I'm really, and, and not to be egotistical, but I'm really that that's for myself as well. Cause like, that was my real, I really wanted to, at the end of the day, I really wanted to make something that sounded a, as humanly good as I possibly could. And without, you know, cause everything on this CP is me. Like I have no one else to blame for anything <laughs> but me. You know, it's like, if there's stuff I don't like on, you know, girl, I dream, I can maybe like be, be shitty in someone else. Cause I did have other people help me out on it, but yeah. this one is all me. And I, I also, it, I pushed myself something that I hadn't really done ever or really considered or thought about. Um, but I, I started, there's this uh, YouTube vocal instructor called Chris Lipe and he, he talks about, um, 
characters a lot, like singers having different characters talking to each other or coming through in vocal lines where it's like you deliver one line with one character, deliver another line with this, or maybe in the verse you've got a character and of course you've got a different. And it, and he's talking characteristic to your voice, I think largely, but he does mean it in kind of an acting way. And I started doing that as well. So it's like with, you know, with ambient, there's kind of a higher, it's not quite falsetto, but it does come from a higher head mixed with the chorus having these lower guttural like <clears throat> you And, and playing with those sorts of characters, you know, playing with those sorts of like, and, and part of it is acting and that I have to like when singing live, I'm like, in order to hit parts correctly, I do have to remember the face that I make like, Oh, this part's easier. If I'm like, eh, you know, and you, for those who can't see me, it's like almost like making a weird smile, but that's right. where part of that sound comes from. And then other places like lowering my jaw, lowering my tongue. And like, and so like, like having that bit of, for lack of a better term, acting into it actually is a part of the the singing and is a part of the performance. And that is something that I had never considered before. Yeah. I, I, not being a singer myself, I never realized that. That's, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. I don't know if anybody does that. Something that he, he, this guy, you know, Chris Lee really kind of like goes after a lot, you know, and, and I started with that. I started looking at a lot of singers I really love and can sing nothing like I can, I like, I can, I will never be able to sound like Mary. I'll never sound like Daryl Palumbo, never sound like Mike Patton, all that. But it started helping me understand their performances in that they are kind of like inhabiting these, especially more theatrical, operatic people like Palumbo and, and Patton. And uh, and actually, at, at band at rehearsal for this show, uh, me and my bandmates, like we love Craig Wedren from uh, Shudder to Think. And you listen to that Pony Express, oh, that album yeah. is such an operatic, theatrical album. And it's like, we're sitting there like doing ex French t-shirt acapella because we know it so well because of his, you know, his voice is so, you know, he's up back the road, you know, and I do it because my voice is shot right now. Um, <laughs> post convention, uh, post convention talking a lot and then post show screaming my lungs out. But like, you know, you, you listen to that dude on that album and I'm sitting there like we were, we were playing through some of that stuff the other day during one of the rehearsals, just kind of goofing off and talking about it. And I, God, no wonder I loved Glassjaw and Mike Patton and all that stuff because it came from Shudder to Think first. That's one of the earlier ones I heard. Yeah. But it also helped me go like as my limited fashion, you know, because I do understand my limits as a, as a singer right now. It's like, but it also helped me understand like my where I'm pushing for right now and where I want to go is a little bit more like theatrical in that way. And and I don't mean like fucking Hamilton or anything like that. I just mean like pushing those characters, pushing like, you know, doing something lower or doing something higher, you know, like that sort of like figuring out those characters and those voices and like telling the stories that way melodically. Does that make sense? And, And this EP is the start of me doing that. And also it's just the, this EP is the culmination of everything I've learned how to do whether it's like be, being a, a better singer, a better songwriter, and also learning to program and perform, you know, learning to program drums, you know, because all the drums are, are it's digital drums, but using like 
uh, get good drum libraries to, to program such naturalistic sounding drums, but then wow. also learning how to produce that. And I'm not using their drums straight out of the, the box, quote mm. unquote. I'm sitting there going like, how can I get this to sound like Steve Albini? How can I get this to sound like, you know, like, cause like with some of my favorite, I always talk about with drums, like some of my favorite touchstones is, uh, uh, the Jesus lizard and Chevelle's first album. Oh yeah. Like everybody goes to Nirvana with Steve Albini, but I'm like, no, I go for the weird, like not weird, but like I go for the stuff that a lot of people want and failure magnified, you know? Yeah. Like drum sound is like, there's nothing. And while the drums on my EP don't sound anything like that, I'm not trying to sound like Steve Albini. I'm just sitting there. That's my frame of reference in my head of like, it needs to sound big and in a room. It needs to sound a certain way that vibes that feels live, you know? And fortunately, like, you know, I've been very, very blessed. Like the biggest giveaway that I'm not a drummer is some of the stuff that I've programmed. Like some drummers will be like, well, you can't actually do that at the same time. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, cool. Hey. I, that, you know, and and we'll so I've been next learning one. how to play drums. Like, the audience can't see me, can't see this, but I actually have like an electronic kit that I'm oh, cool. learning how to play drums on. So that's awesome. <laughs> you know? It's all because I'm sitting there like, I want to be a better, I want to be a better songwriter, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. So learning, learning how to physically play it after teaching myself over the last few years to program it and to get good at that, learning how to physically play it, it already helped me so much. Cause like the new batch of songs, like the drum parts that I'm writing for that stuff is much more fitting towards what a drummer can play. It's still not a hundred percent because I am not that good yet, but like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's better. It, it's, it's a better stab in the dark than if I go those three hours worth of music that I told you about that mm -hmm. I, that I didn't put out, like you listen to some of my early attempts at drum programming and you're, you're going to be like, well, that's, there's, there's some drums there. Yes. The CP is kind of like you storyboarding for your next albums for what's to come. Not yeah, not a bad not a bad way to look at it. I am there is going to be a theme like so my my plan, you know, and hopefully this is the plan that the universe can get in line with. But my plan is to put out the next EP over the summer, and then I've actually started working on. I have the uh, a third EP for the fall. It's written, um, and, I, I, and I'm listening. To, I'm through the thing of like because it, it's written and I wrote it very fast because three of the songs are from that three hours with music I trashed. Oh, okay. So like I pu I'm pulling those out, and so that that helped the writing process go smoother. But I'm also listening to it a bunch now, going like, does is this thematically work? Does this make sense? Yeah. Do I am I still as passionate about this stuff as I was? Also, since half of it doesn't have lyrics, what is how do I close out the themes that I'm trying to talk about here? You know, because oh, it's like if you take if you take the opening theme of, of Sincerely Paul and someone you know crying out to their higher self or to their maker or whatever and then you follow the through line to the end of the question you know we're standing in, in the middle of hell and saying where do we go from here you know there's a the, yeah the, and the next ep kind of was that through follows that through line and then the last okay. one is kind of like trying to i I, I'll, I don't know i'm still working out the themes but yeah you know i i and that's in, and that's interesting to me because i've always thought that way about comics you know, and TV stuff and all that, but I've never thought that way about music, even though I'm a big fan of albums that do that. And I don't consider these concept albums, they're just theme albums, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a big Marlta fan, especially that first, I mean, that sound like everybody is, you know, but like that, there's a story there, even if you don't know what the story is, you can tell it's a cohesive narrative, you know, you yeah. can tell it's cohesive thematically, you know, and same with like a lot of coheed stuff, obviously. Yeah. You know, there's a theme and then he's writing literal narratives and all that. And I'm like, and I'm not trying to do that. Like he's writing stuff with like dialogue and back and forth. And I'm like, I ain't trying to do that. <laughs>
love it. Love you, Claudio. And that's not where my head's at. But I, right. I do I do appreciate a good thematically linked album. You know, I do appreciate like Yeah. Cause like I know that they that it's not and this is probably gonna sound like a weird touchstone, but I'm a I'm a big My Chemical Romance fan, especially oh God, what's that album? Uh the one before Black Parade. Um My daughters would know. I don't I'm No. Anyways, I'll uh hold on. It's gonna bug yeah, me. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm the same way. It's gonna bug me until I look it up. I apologize, and thankfully you can edit this out. Unless yeah, you just no want to make me look really bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> three cheers for sweet revenge. Um, okay. Like I know that that's not a concept album, but it has a loose theme and concept to it. So it feels like a beginning, middle, and end, and I like that. That that kind of idea, you know, and I feel like because the album has kind of gone away in a, in a loose sense. I'm kind yeah. of taking the shittier version of what the weekend did 10 years ago. And he released like three mixtapes, whereas I'm just going to do like three EPs that eventually, and it's actually what failure did. Like I'm, I'm yeah. doing three EPs that eventually will make up a cohesive long form thing. You know, that's a good point. It's a good point. I, I like the title songs from the giant's chair. It sounds kind of like tears for fears did a prog rock cover album. No, you nailed it. You nailed it. Um, it's a Tears for Fears ref, which is also, uh, if you go into the history behind, behind that album title, they were referencing uh, the movie Sybil. Oh, okay. Uh, right, with where she felt, basically she felt comfortable in her, her psychiatrist's big chair. Yeah. But there's a Kansas City kind of like noise rock band from the 90s, uh, and I think they just recently got back together called Giant's Chair. And because I, I had come up with the title for the two, so there's the two songs that are in the middle of the album and they're the crux of the album is When Giants Slumber and The Giants Awake. Mm -hmm. Those were written as one long song that then I just split up for tra title tracking, you know, titling purposes. Okay. But so the title was always, the initial title was, was always When Giants Slumber. And then when I split them up, I was like, well, it makes sense to, to call it slumber, those quiet ones slumber and then the loud one awake. Yeah. But when I was going to title the album, I really liked the notion that played on, you know, because there's a bunch of other titles in consideration, and I was kind of crowdsourcing it amongst, amongst my publicist and uh, uh, the label guy. Okay. The uh, Haunted Birthday Records. I was like, which one do y'all like better? Because, like, I, you know, it's like, I'm just like, I could go with any of these. And that one, and plus amongst my friends, that one to win out. And I, nobody ever told me why, but in, <laughs> I just liked the idea that layer-wise, it referenced one of my favorite albums, which is Songs from the Big Chair. And then you calling it putting in giant's chair was not only a reference to the giants in the album and the giants of, of emotion and trauma that the album is dealing with, but also that, you know, this nineties band that like a lot of people probably aren't aware of that was big and playing around a lot when I was younger. So awesome. I just liked that. I, yeah. I love that. That is great. So, yeah, thank you. So how can people pick up the, album? how can they find oh, it, it? Yeah, it's, it's out on Spotify and Apple Music now. Um, yeah, well, it's anywhere. Honestly, it's everywhere. So it, it's, you know, YouTube, Google Google Play, all that stuff. But Spotify is one of the big ones, obviously. And then uh, I do have a, a limited run of cassettes out via Haunted Birthday Records. Man, cassettes. So you go to hauntedbirthday.com. Yeah, I know, right? I've got a question. Has there ever been any time where your art and the, your music cross paths or connect? Or they, do they influence each other in any way? Oh, that's question um well i mean they they cross paths in the sense that i do all my own album art so well, actually with one caveat so for a girl tree of dream i did that all that art and there's like a liner notes that i put up as a pdf for download that i did and then for um songs from the giants chair i, I that's all those are all photos the the, uh, the cover and then the if you look on the inside of the set they're actually photos that i've 
and adjusted a little bit, but they're photos I took when I was drunk one night, uh, <laughs> hanging out at Atlanta and I always liked them because they were very so abstract looking. So I've awesome. kind of become obsessed with like weird blurry photos lately. Uh, but, uh, so anyways, um, so that's where like my art intersects in that I literally do all the design and it's my handwriting that you see on all that stuff. Oh, okay. um, Guitarscapes is my handwriting, but the cover was actually a painting my friend Summer um, we used to be in a band together, uh, mid two thousands, but my friend summer, she does these things where she'll get drunk and paint. And so she, <laughs> I, I love them. Um, and, and so much so as I've for people in, uh, like my girlfriend has been hanging in her house, wow. but I asked her, I was like, Hey, can you do me a couple that I can choose one from for this cover? So she did me too, sent them to me and I scanned it in and that's, and that's the cover. Oh, uh, I just, awesome. yeah, <laughs> that is so great. I love it so much. And that, yeah, she sent me another one, so I told her I'll use it for an eventual other volume of Guitarscapes because it's like I love both of them. There's no reason to hide either of these, oh, you know. Man. And Guitarscapes isn't the thing that needs liner notes. Like, right. what's the liner note uh, written and performed by me? Yes, yeah. by me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really envious of your talent. I mean, I play oh, okay. noisy guitar myself, but nothing, you know. But the artwork just, I mean, I've got a bunch of things I'm trying to do. And if I had your artwork I, your ability, I could get them done. I, I, yeah. Well, and you know what, man, I will say that like, I, I, the barrier to entry for that kind of thing is so, is so changed now. And I, and I, I don't say low in a bad way. I say low in a good way. Like it's like having GarageBand on your phone. The barrier to entry is that you don't need a huge studio and same thing with art and stuff like that. Like you can actually kind of using all the, using a lot of these different apps, like, you know, you can kind of find ways to create things without needing to sketch or whatever, you know, it's like, if you can see it in your head yeah. and you can photo or kind of collage some things. So that's something I would maybe look at is look at on your phone or on your iPad, look into like getting, looking into what you can use. And I'm happy to recommend offline, happy to recommend apps for you to pay, to take a look at. But yeah. if you're seeing something like start taking photos and you can start collaging and editing and color adjusting. And there's, there's a whole world of open to you that exists, you know, because, you know, people have worked to make, things for people like you, you know, I, I yeah. like they're, they're tools for me that I love, but what they're a lot, what a lot of this stuff is meant for is meant for the casual person who wants to do something, but you know, is like, how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that. I I'm all for the democratization of all of it. Make all, you know, same thing with filmmaking. Like I started shooting short films using my, using my phone, you know, yeah. and it's like teaching myself how to edit in DaVinci Resolve. But then now I do all the editing on my iPad because there's an app called LumaFusion that's so much easier for me to use and oh. quicker because, and also because I can edit using that same app on my phone and then send myself a project to my iPad and switch back and forth. So it's, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah. all right. Where can people follow you on social media and check out other live shows that might be coming up or you know what you're doing in the world of archer or any other projects that you're working on sure yeah my central hub is just kevin mellon.com k-e-v-i-n-m-e-l-l-o-n.com but then on twitter i'm at k mellon and then same thing on instagram at k mellon and then i've got music accounts on both but you can find those through the main accounts like you know um and you'll see you'll see on all of that stuff you'll see I mostly stay, I stay pretty up to date on Twitter and Instagram. The website gets updated every two, every month or so. Um, I'm working on trying to figure out what's the best way to update without inundating five, without having to do five different sites. And yeah. it's so annoying, um, <laughs> you know, cause my, my Instagram tends to auto populate my Facebook so that I yeah. don't have to go there as much unless I really want to, you know, um, and as much as people bitch about Twitter, mine's so curated. 
I have good conversations and interactions there. So, oh, that's it's, good. You know. <laughs> and that's going to yeah, change. I, I, um, you know, and as far as uh, uh, updates on like animation and stuff like that, I do try to keep everything updated. The unfortunate thing is, like, I, I tend to be on a lot of stuff I can't talk about for months to years at a time. <laughs> so I try, I try to, you know, it's like because like with Hitmonkey, I couldn't really talk about it until like a month or two before it actually started airing. Oh, so I spent three years on that show not being able to say what I was doing. Wow. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. But, you know, I mean, that said, yeah, so that said, go watch, you know, Hitmonkey season one, go watch Archer season 12 and for your bodies for, like I said, we're working on season 13 right now and go watch Hitmonkey so that uh, Hulu and Marvel know that we, you guys want more of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, as far as live shows go, putting the band together for this, what was supposed to be a one-off show, did light a fire under my ass, too. Especially with the guys that I, I played with, because it's all people I've known for, like, they were guys were in my high school band. Oh, cool. Um, and it lit a fire under me, and it lit a fire under them to be like, you know what, we like doing this, we like playing with each other. I got texts from all of them, you know, today saying, like, let's do this again. So it lets me know that, like, it's validating to feel like I'm doing something that other people want to be a part of. Yeah. And that's, I don't know how any other guests feel about that, but I'm super grateful uh, that anybody wants to do anything with me. So, you know, it's <laughs> like, you know uh, I, I, I don't know, like, maybe it's just imposter syndrome or whatever. But so it, it I, this plan of doing more EPs, I'm going to try and do something that like I've always felt about like music and, and shows and stuff like that. I can't tour. Uh, I can't at least not, you know, the way that I would need to, to really support an album and stuff like that. But what yeah. I can do is I can try and create special events. So what I, what I'm going to try and do is knowing this long game is to set up the next EP release show or shows and stuff like that. Okay. Set up the, the one down the line. That way it makes it like a, like a movie or like, you know, makes it something more special. It makes it an event that people want to be a part of. And that like, Oh, you know, this is a cool way to celebrate with this thing, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's like, I did like a, just a quick and shitty Facebook live last night for, so that there's some, my, like, you know, my, my, my girlfriend and then some other family members could watch the show who couldn't make it. And watching all these other bands do live shows during pandemic really got me thinking about like, okay, because I can't tour, like, and because I, at this point I can't tour, you know, things could change, but like, yeah. what are these other ways that I can be creative about it? So I've, uh, that's something that I'm going to look into, that I'm looking into, and I feel like going forward will be a way to, uh, that people can kind of connect with what I'm doing is hopefully by doing these special events slash online, you know, stuff like that. So. Uh Awesome. Awesome. This has been a blast, man. I, oh, first, first time for, for a storyboard artist, comic artist. So this is, I learned a lot. Dude, I, no. And I want to say, I know I said it to you, I know I said it before and I'll just keep repeating it, but I was super stoked when, uh, uh, when Melissa, the publicist, you know, who's been working with me on this stuff came at me with your thing. I was like, ah, I listen to this podcast. That's awesome. awesome. You know, I, I'm a big fan of um, you know, and clearly I need to go back and listen to your archives, but I just listening to the, the dozens of hours that I have that you've done over the last like year or so, like <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of the kind of conversations that you have, the space that you allow your guests to have to really kind of talk about stuff. And you've been very gracious with me tonight doing the same thing and letting me do what I'm doing right now, which is ramble, and <laughs> <laughs> just ramble on. <laughs> no, man. This that's why I started it. I wanted to hear these stories. I didn't want it to be interview questions where you have, here's, here's question a, you have 30 seconds to answer it. Then we go to question B that I want you guys to say what you want yeah. to say. Yeah. No. I mean, I try to make, it's like, as you know, doing these kind of like, I'm sure you deal with this with other people as well, but doing these multiple podcasts and stuff like that, I really try to 
even if I'm answering this, a similar question, you're not asking me the same question. You're asking me a different angle on it, but also I try not to give you a bad answer. I try to make sure that like when I'm talking about it, it's like, I'm talking to you and telling you this answer, which is going to be different than the other person. And it's not that the information is different. It's just that the conversation is different. The person receiving the information is different. And I, I really, I really appreciate that. And I, I do, I hope your audience appreciates you because I feel like you're doing really conversational work with, with this stuff. And, Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs> must-have trends and innovative styles at Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. Shop one-of-a-kind finds in today's must-have trends. Explore wall-to-wall deals, furniture, flooring, mattresses, home accents, seasonal favorites, and more. Discover unique new home decor, pillows, accessories, and more. There's something perfect for your style and budget. There's new inventory every day at up to 80% off suggested retail. Discover the style and savings of Mrs. B's Clearance and Outlet. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.